God's Word. We are in 1 Peter chapter 5. Beginning in verse 6, I'm going to read through the end of the letter. It should be on the screen. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ Jesus. You may be seated, and then we'll pray over the reading of God's word. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, as always, that we have it in our language, that we can read it. We thank you for your spirit, not only helping us understand, but giving us what we need to obey it. And so I pray that we would receive your word with open ears, with open minds, with open hearts. I pray that you would use your word for our good this morning. Father, we are dependent on you to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. In the meeting with with Rhymes last week, preparing for her baptism, Father, she said, in regard to her own salvation, God had to do it. Amen. You have to do it. Unless you do it, we are lost. Unless you do it, we carry our burdens with no hope of relief. Unless you do it, we are lost in our sin. Unless you do it, our greatest joys will always come up short. Unless you do it, we are hopeless. So thank you, thank you for the true grace of the gospel that you did it through your son. And so... Now, as we hear your word, may we receive it by faith, and may we respond by obeying it. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So, yeah, the arrangement in the room is a little bit different, but uh, some of you have probably been able to put two and two together. This is about what it's going to look like at our new building, the the property on McCullough. uh, Mitchell and I were in here, and we were, you know, just really... Uh, thoughtful scientists, you know, like, now let's see, what could we do here to help our people get prepared? Let's just set it up exactly like it's going to be over there. Now, you just need, those of you on the back row, you need to just imagine, like, leaning your head against a wall, though, okay? So, like, if you could just do that, that that'll be a little bit more realistic, but, but yeah, this is about what it's going to be like, and, uh, you know, as we sent out an email, and we'll continue doing that, we're, you know, that move is happening, nothing's, nothing's preventing that from happening, and you guys, uh, we'll have opportunities to help serve in, in making that happen um, after next week. So if you hadn't figured it out by all the emails and all the communication, next Sunday, November 25th, is our last Sunday in this building. Woo! Right? I was waiting for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, I see Mr. Tommy back there. He's like, oh, praise God, we are finally out of this wilderness and the promised land is ahead. Yeah. For those of you that have been here like five minutes, I'm sorry, it's just not a big deal to you, but, um, yeah. You know, First Peter is, is such an important book, especially with everything that's happening in the world today and where we are uh, just as a culture, as a society, and uh, the church really is um, starting to get, especially the church in the South, into more of a position to see, no, we actually are sojourners. We actually are in exile, and that's an important place to be, you see, because sometimes it's really hard for us to identify with Peter's audience. And if you're unable to identify with the audience, it's going to be really tough for you to identify with the message. Peter's audience were suffering and scared saints. These are, these are Christians. These are, these are people who... You know, it's new, like, like Christianity is new. For, for everyone who comes to, to faith in Jesus, Christianity is new for you, but Christianity itself was new at this time. And so they have adopted this new philosophy, this new theology, this new faith, this new religion, and it's genuinely costing them. It's costing them their families, it's costing them their livelihoods. It's costing them their lives. And they're seeing their brothers and sisters from all around suffering for the sake of Jesus. So you can only imagine that as Peter's writing this letter and as they're receiving it and reading it, how scared they must have been, knowing that at any moment someone could come and knock on their door and just take them to their death or rip them away from their family and put them in prison. Just, for, just because they're connected to Jesus. Can you imagine how many times they probably question, why am I still doing this? All I have to do is stop following Jesus and I don't have any worries. All of my worries, all of my burdens, all of this suffering that I'm enduring is connected to Jesus and the fact that I'm following him. And, and even though that's not our immediate context, I imagine that many of us walked in this room this morning feeling overwhelmed. Feeling worried, scared, discouraged. Maybe you are on the brink of despair. Maybe it's gone too far. Maybe it's in a relationship. Maybe it's in your marriage. Maybe it's just in your faith or in your job. Maybe you just don't know how to cope with your pain and suffering, especially if it's related to the fact that you're following Jesus. Maybe you need, maybe you're in desperate need of a word of hope and grace. You see, Peter's closing this letter with one final word of hope. And it, it reminds me, you know, I love history. It reminds me of World War II. And I, I especially love the World War II era. I especially love Winston Churchill. Um, you know, uh, Miss Rita, she all the time says that Jack looks just like Winston Churchill. It always cracks us up. And I always love it, you know. But I, I love Churchill. Um, in the summer of 1940, for those of you that uh, remember that time, um, at the summer of 1940 in Europe, Europe itself was collapsing. You see, the Nazis had a powerful war machine and it was sweeping across Europe and it was happening fast, you know. Like all of these smaller countries are just being pummeled by the Nazis as they're heading toward France. And now in the summer of 1940, something that the British Parliament wasn't quite aware of yet and definitely the, the British people weren't quite aware of is that France was about to fall, of course, right? But France is about to fall. And Great Britain was kind of teetering on that line. And if the Nazis had France, an invasion was imminent. And so Winston Churchill is leading the British people, and he has all of this knowledge, and he's going to address the House of Commons. And he has this, this famous speech, because it's his tough job to inform them of how bad things really are. You know, like he can't lie, he has to tell them. France is about to fall. And you can imagine the fear that would have swept in knowing that the Nazis would have France and it's just a stone's throw away from the British island. But he has to do that and also encourage them 
with a word of hope for ultimate victory. And so Winston Churchill, in one speech, well, I guess technically it was three speeches over the course of a couple months, but in essentially one speech, galvanized the entire nation and essentially saved Europe. I mean, you know, stars and bars had to come in and help them out a little bit, but, you know, we'll, we'll just, we'll give, them, we'll give them credit. Credit, you know, is due there. But he, he closes this famous speech with these, these amazing words. He says, Even though large tracts of Europe and many old and famous states have fallen or may fall into the grip of the Gestapo and all the odious apparatus of Nazi rule, we shall not flag or fail. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And a friend of Churchill's, just a few months later, he, he, he wrote him and he said that his speech was worth 1,000 guns. That his speech was worth the speeches of 1,000 years. And it was literally a turning point in the war. This hope that he gave the people. They believed that they would overcome because of these words. Peter is addressing people, and you may not feel that you're in this position but he's going to remind you that you are. You're under attack. We have an enemy, and he is after our destruction. And maybe, whether it's circumstances or sin, maybe you're enduring suffering right now that's leading you to a point of despair, and you just need a word of hope. Peter offers that word of hope for us at the end of this letter, and he does it with four exhortations that are rooted in four gospel promises. These things that he says, you need to do these things. You need to do this, 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 and this, but the reason you can do these things are because of these rock-solid promises of God that you could never earn or achieve on your own. So that's what I want us to do. I want us to look at each of these through this letter. So if you have your notes, I want to invite you to get those out and we're going to look at those together. Your passage in a sentence, the way that we're going to summarize this passage is, is in this way. God meets us in our suffering and need with true grace that empowers us to endure. At the very end of the letter, you notice there, he kind of summarizes what he's tried to do. He says, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. So what he's trying to encourage them to do is to stand firm, but he's, they're not standing firm on their own spiritual um, abilities or acumen. They're standing firm on the true grace of God, and that is the only way that they're going to be able to endure through the suffering that they are currently experiencing. And so God meets us in our suffering and our need with this true grace that empowers us to endure. And let's walk through each of these exhortations and just take a look at these promises. The first is in verse 6. Peter exhorts us, if we're in a season of suffering, to be humble because God is mighty. So you have this exhortation, be humble. He says, humble yourselves. But the reason that we can do that is because God is mighty. You know, in the first little point in your notes there, I say we are prone to pride during seasons of suffering because suffering focuses our attention on ourselves. You see, that's, that's essentially all pride is. We know how dangerous pride is, right? We know what pride can do. But pride really begins with a subtle and innocent thought of yourself. That's it. And honestly, we're going to talk about Satan a little bit later, but if Satan can just keep you thinking about yourself, he doesn't even have to tempt you with anything else. If he can just keep your attention focused on yourself and your own state of affairs and your own, you know, what you're doing, you're going to be thinking more about yourself than anyone else. And that's where pride grows. And so when you suffer, you know, when you're enduring pain or loss or, or whatever, whatever the form of suffering is, especially if it's related to following Jesus, you're more prone to focus on yourself. Not even necessarily in a bad way yet, 
but you're just thinking about yourself. You're thinking about your pain. It's more acute. And when that leads to pride, here's where it gets us in trouble. Pride says, I got this. Pride says, I can handle this. I don't need any help. I don't know why this is happening to me. And so pride and bitterness kind of go hand in hand. I don't know why this is happening to me. If God really loved me, I don't know why he would allow me to go through a season of suffering. This doesn't really make any sense to me, but I can handle this. And so we never, right, even in the church, we never want to come across as weak. We just, we just don't want to do that. And that's our pride. We're suffering. We're going through a hard time. And we're afraid if we share that with someone, oh, we're immediately going to be judged. You know, they're, they're going to think, well, should, you should have obviously done something different. I think of like, you know, parents with young children. This is kind of a small form of suffering. But when, when you have small children, you know, there are all these ways that, you know, the books tell you or that seasoned parents tell you that you're supposed to. Uh, raise your kids, especially when it comes to sleeping schedules and, you know, how much time you have in front of the TV and just all these different things you're supposed to do. And, you know, sometimes those little people, those little tiny people, you know, that, that you have to carry around and do everything for, they don't care what the book says. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I see, yeah, we got a lot of young, young families in here. Yeah, I mean, no, they don't care. They do, they, they just going to do what they want, you know, and sometimes, and sometimes it keeps you up all night, every single night, and you can have, and honestly, and maybe this is some of you, you, we can have moms and dads in our midst who, who are going through all of that, and it's really, really hard, but they don't want to admit it because they're afraid that people are going to think they're a bad parent. That's pride. Do you know why it's dangerous? Pride rejects grace. You see, like earlier, God opposes the humble, you know, just, just up in verse 5. Or, or sorry, God opposes the humble. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble in, at the end of verse five. Pride rejects grace because in order to receive grace, you have to admit that you need it. And pride does not allow you to do that. So Peter says, if you're suffering, you need to humble yourself. Admit your need. Admit that you don't got this, that you can't handle it, that you need help. Here's why that's freeing. Because of the mighty hand of God. You can't handle it, he can. You can't get through this, he can get you through this. It's in our weakness that the strength of God is displayed. And as long as we hold on to our pride, we will never receive this grace. Pride is dangerous. Pride will kill you. Pride will kill you because you will never run to the one who can give you the grace you need for life. So Peter says, humble yourself. And, and how can we do that? I have three suggestions here from this passage. First, remember that God is mighty and majestic because the power of God crushes the pride of man. We can puff ourselves up and think that we have it all and then whenever you just take five seconds to gaze on the majesty and might of God, you see how small you are. You see how weak you really are. And while that may cause some to turn away for those of us who are in Christ, those of us who are receiving grace, we take great pleasure in the fact that we are weak and God is strong, especially when we're in a season of suffering. But secondly, we don't just need to remember that God is mighty and majestic, but we also need to remember that humility leads to glory. Look at the end of verse six. It says, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. So this state of humiliation, this humility that we're to have, it's not forever. It's temporary. Humility leads to glory. So you can either be humble now you can either be in a state of humiliation now and a state of exaltation later or you can exalt yourself now and be humbled later with eternal punishment that's that's what's before us that's what's before every single person in our city humility now leads to future glory and 
We don't need to look any further than Jesus to see all of this. So if you feel pride welling up in your heart, look to Jesus. Because Jesus humbled himself in his birth. We talked about the transcendence and the eminence of God. God the Son is eternal. And he left the glory of his Father and came and became a human. And he experienced, he was not immune to all the effects of the fall. He was not immune to all the effects of sin. He was right here with us. The word became flesh. He humbled himself in his birth, but even more than that, he humbled himself in his death. You don't have to turn there, but in Philippians chapter two, uh, Paul exhorting his readers to also humble themselves says this, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So you need to see Jesus' humility as an example for your own humility, but not just that, he purchases our humility. We can be humble because Jesus killed all of our pride because he bore it on himself as he died in our place. But see that his humility led to glory. Look, look at the rest here. Well, sorry, you're not looking at it. I told you not to turn there. But just listen. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Jesus, in his resurrection, was exalted. In his ascension, was exalted. He is exalted now, and he is in glory now. And that is an exaltation. That is a glory that you and I will share with him one day. So be humble now because one day when he returns, one day when you're with him, you will no longer be in a state of humility. You will be exalted with him, the one who is above every name and greater than all things and all persons. So be humble because God is mighty. All right, second, second truth from this passage. Don't worry because God cares for you. So you have the exhortation, don't worry and then the gospel promise, because God cares for you. Look in verse seven. Finishing up this thought, he says, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. I, this is so obvious, it's not hardly even worth saying, but when we suffer in whatever way, we're prone to worry, right? Right? Why are we prone to worry? We're prone to worry in times of suffering because suffering creates a couple things. It creates danger and it creates uncertainty. When you suffer, you recognize, whoa, I'm not invincible. You know, some, some really bad things can happen to me. I'm very mortal. You don't even have to suffer personally. You can just see suffering in the world and, and fear the danger that can come. But when you're in a season of suffering as well, there's just uncertainty. You know, doctors can give you their predictions. They can say, we think this is going to happen. We think it's going to happen this way. And then it can totally fall apart. The economy can, can just collapse. There's just so much that's uncertain, especially when we're in a time of suffering. And so when we don't know what's going to happen in the future, and honestly, we're just kind of afraid that whatever is in the future is just bad for us, we're prone to worry. But we don't just worry, do we? We carry our worries. We bear them on our shoulders. We load them up and we take them into every relationship, into every single place that we go. But as some of us have experienced, and maybe some of us just need to, to heed this warning, if you try to carry your worries, they will crush you. Maybe you're here this morning and you feel like you crawled in here because you're crushed beneath the weight of your own anxiety, of your own 
worry. Peter has this beautiful word. He says, cast your anxieties on God. Cast your burdens on God. He's actually probably pulling this from Psalm 55. Psalm 55 verse 22 says this, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. So I want to encourage you in the way that Peter's encouraging you here. If, if you're filled with worry, and especially if you're trying to carry your worries around with you, I want to encourage you to cast your worries on God because unlike you, he can bear the weight. He can bear the weight of all your concerns, of all your fears, of all your burdens, of all your worries. He can handle it, so cast them on him. Cast them on him. Don't try to bear them yourselves. Don't try to hold on to your worry. Cast your worries on the only one who can handle their weight. And, you know, I think there are just a couple things here we can do as, as we even ask the question, well, how do we do that? You know, how can we cast our worries on God? The first thing you need to do is just a simple thought. Honestly, this, this simple thought helps so much. It just comes at the end. It's real short, real short phrase. Because he cares for you. How often do you think about that? Maybe, you know, and especially here, we emphasize the bigness of God, you know, about how sovereign he is and how in control of everything he is. And yes, the, you know, God is in control of every single moment in my life, and, and we emphasize that a lot. But how often do you just consider how much God cares for you? He cares for you. The way a parent cares for a child. Sometimes we care too much as parents, right? Like we... we care about every single detail in our child's lives I remember my dad used to get frustrated uh, because his dad would call every single night I mean, I'm talking like you know I'm like in high school you know so you know my dad's in his in his 40s and and his dad's in his like you know 60s and still calling him every single day hey what's going on because he cared he cared what was going on with his life. God cares what's happening in your life he cares about the choices that you're making. He cares about your job. He cares about what school you go to and what's happening in those classes. He cares for you. So when you cast your anxieties on God, you're not just casting them on someone who's just powerful and it's like he's just this power source who can just handle it and fix all of your problems. You're casting it on someone who is intimately involved with you. He cares, he's there, and he wants to help. So remember God's fatherly care, his intimate care for you. Sometimes you might just need to crawl into his lap, right? Just spend some extended time in prayer. Just talking to him. Telling him about your day. Because he cares. He cares. And then also, we need to look no further than Jesus. So Whenever you're burdened by something, I want to encourage you to look to Jesus. Because Jesus is both our example and our substitute. First, Jesus himself. He depended on his father's care throughout his life. Throughout his life on this earth, Jesus was constantly in prayer. He was constantly depending on his father. And if Jesus needed to depend on his father without any sin in him whatsoever, how much more should we be in a state of dependence on God moment by moment? So look to him as your example in that way, but also you need to understand that Jesus purchased rest for you. Rest. So that you don't have to worry. We are going to turn to this passage. I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to look at a couple places in in Matthew, Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. Because I always find it interesting what Jesus commands. You know, it's, it's important to focus on what Jesus commands because everything he commands, he's going to purchase for you later. 
you know? Like, like we don't just have this, this great teacher, you know, whose teachings we follow to try to live a really good life, but everything Jesus is commanding here, he knows we can't do in our own power, and he's actually going to purchase later as he dies on a cross. So I always find it interesting to see what he commands. And look at verse 25. I and mean, this is a command, y'all. Like, same thing with people. Like, cast your anxieties on God. Look what Jesus says in verse 25. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Like, really? There's a lot to be anxious about. You know, there's a lot to worry about. And Jesus says, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't worry. He says, don't be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. It's not life more than food and the body more than clothing. It's not less, but it's not, yeah, is it not more than that? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Listen to this. Peter's probably remembering this as he even writes his letter. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. Therefore, he says it again, do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Jesus depended on his Father, and he commands us, don't worry. How can he command such a thing? That's impossible. With everything that happens in our lives, how can we not worry? There has to be something more than just afraid. Like, I can tell my kids all day long to do stuff. They're not going to do it. There has to be more than just a command, a flat command. Hey, don't worry. Really? Turn to Matthew chapter 11. Here's how. Verse 28. Matthew eleven twenty-eight is maybe my favorite verse in the whole Bible. This is how Jesus can tell us not to worry about anything. He says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light the only way we can be free from worry free from anxiety is if we are resting in Jesus if you're resting in Jesus you are safe, you are secure. No one has provided more for you than he. You can cast all of your burdens, all of your anxieties, all of your worries on God, your father who cares for you because God the son purchased rest for you. And when you come to him, you come to rest. And when you rest, in Christ, you actually can be free from your worry. This is something that's possible for us. Not permanently and not perfectly now. One day it will be. But it is possible to take all of your worry and cast it on God. Because he cares for you and because Jesus purchased rest for you. Don't worry because God cares for you. All right, third point from this passage. Resist Satan because God has conquered him. Oh, this, this is 
an amazing couple verse. Uh, these verses are so amazing. He's, Peter says in verse eight, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Do you know, like that imagery, how fresh would that have been for these first century Christians, you know? Knowing that their brothers and sisters in Rome are actually being devoured by lions. That image, that picture. And then he says in verse nine, these two words, how amazing they are. Resist him. Another command. So Peter expects that we are able to do this. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So a few things we need to see here. First, we need to resist Satan because he is a cunning and capable enemy. We pretend that Satan is either a fantasy or not present or not active to our own detriment. It is foolish to forget that we have an enemy who is after our destruction. And Satan is both cunning and capable. This picture of a line, you guys ever see like Discovery Channel stuff? You know, like Blue Planet stuff, all those, all those shows. You know, have you ever seen like those, just the footage of a lion hunting? Like it's frightening you know like you don't even see it coming I feel so sorry because you know what's going to happen like you you're just sitting here watching it and you're just like oh that poor gazelle you know you're just and it's just like grazing you know and minding its own business and you know the lions they actually you know choose they're they're very they're very smart in, in who they choose to attack and it's usually weaker uh animals in the in the herd or, or wounded animals in the herd you know they're very efficient in that way but they're, they're searching and they're prowling and they're quiet. And then all of a sudden, boom, like the lion just starts chasing. And sometimes the animal will start running away, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't take very long. Those, those jaws, jaws clamp down and it's over dinner time for the, for the lions and the cubs. Satan is compared to a lion, but not just any lion, a hungry lion. He's prowling around seeking someone to devour. We need to resist Satan because his goal is destruction and his means is deception. Do you know what that means? He's trying to kill you and you won't even know it until it's too late. Uh, I love C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters, one of my favorite books from Lewis. If you've never read it, uh, C.S. Lewis, he, he writes from the perspective of this like seasoned demon, you know, who has all this experience in tempting um, and waging war against God's people. And throughout the book, he calls God the enemy. You know, it's, it's a really interesting book. Um, but there's this moment in the book where... Uh, in, in this letter to, to Screwtape's protege, Wormwood, he gives an account of his own experience uh, from a former patient of his because he's kind of frustrated with, with Wormwood and the ways that he's just failing to tempt you know, his patients away from the enemy. And so he's like, let me, let me tell you a story. This is how you do it. You're, you're going about it all wrong. And this is how, how Lewis kind of sees the way Satan tempts us. He says, I once had a patient a sound atheist who used to read in the British Museum. One day as he sat reading, I saw a train of thought in his mind beginning to go the wrong way. The enemy, of course, was at his elbow in a moment. Before I knew where I was, I saw my 20 years' work beginning to totter. If I had lost my head and begun to attempt a defense by argument, I should have been undone. But I was not such a fool. I struck instantly at the part of the man which I had best under my control and suggested that it was just about time he had some lunch. That would definitely get me. At least, oh, I'm sorry. Um, the enemy presumably made the counter suggestion that this was more important than lunch. At least I think that must have been his line for when I said, quite. In fact, much too important to tackle at the end of a morning. The patient brightened up considerably, and by the time I had added, much better come back after lunch and go into it with a fresh mind. He was already halfway to the door. Once he was in the street, the battle was won. So in, in this case, 
We have this demon who's tempting this, this man who currently does not believe in God, who's starting to have thoughts that are Godward, and, and God is meeting him in his thoughts, and, and Satan tempts him not by trying to say, no, 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 Here, here's how silly, this is why it's silly to believe in God and all these like reasoned arguments. He just says, aren't you hungry though? Don't you need to go eat? Satan deceives us for the purpose of destroying us, and if we are not, as Peter says, sober-minded and watchful, we will fall prey to a lion who is after our destruction without even realizing it. Because he is cunning and he is capable and he uses many schemes to tempt us away from godliness, away from righteousness. Thomas Brooks, he's a Puritan who who wrote an excellent book, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. And he actually outlines six devices of Satan. And I just want you to notice the, the nature of these devices. They're, they're, you know, when you consider Satan as this like, like lion, you, know, you think that he's going to tempt you in these massive ways, but they're always small. They're always subtle. They don't even feel like you're being tempted sometimes. You know, Thomas Brooks, he says, device number one, Satan shows you the bait and hides the hook. He comments on this and he says, Satan's first device to draw the soul into sin is to present the bait and hide the hook, to present the golden cup and hide the poison, to present the sweet, the pleasure, and the profit that may flow in upon the soul by yielding to sin, and to hide from the soul the wrath and misery that will certainly follow the committing of sin. His second device, he says, Satan gets you to rationalize sin as virtue. You know, I'm, I'm not really nosy. I'm just really concerned about you. The third device, Satan shows you the sins of Christian leaders so that you may justify your own sin. Well, if, if he's doing that, you know, or when you sin, you're like, yeah, but I've heard of this person who's doing that and you try to justify it. Device number four, Satan overstresses the mercy of God. Oh, God will surely forgive you. You have the grace of God. It's okay. Device number five, he makes you bitter over suffering. This, this applies here really well. You know, just the thought, you don't know what I've been through. And so when you're in a season of suffering, you fall prey to Satan's temptation. You almost feel justified to sin because of how poorly your life is going. Device number six, Satan shows Christians how many bad people are living great lives. And then device number seven, Satan gets you to compare one part of your life to another. All subtle ways that Satan tempts you. And so we need to be sober-minded. We need to be watchful. You need to be aware. You need to be alert that Satan is a real enemy who is after your destruction. And if he can draw you away from the things of God, he will do it and he will use whatever means necessary to make that happen. However, however, Peter tells us to resist Satan, to resist him. How can we do that? First, we do have to be aware and alert. But secondly, we stand firm in our faith because we know whose side we're on. If you're in Christ today, you're on the side of the victor. You're on the side of the one who conquered Satan. That's the gospel promise here. That's the gospel hope here. You can resist Satan because God has conquered him. Because God has reigned victorious over him. And you're on his side. Satan is the enemy, which itself is encouraging. Because if Satan is your enemy, then God is your friend. So stand firm because you're on the side of the victor, but also we can take courage because you're not alone in this spiritual war. Do you see how Peter kind of frames this in verse nine? He says, resist him, firm in your faith, but not just firm in your faith. You're knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. All Christians everywhere in the world today experience temptation from Satan because he is after all of our destruction. But not just Christians all around the world, not just your brotherhood all around the world, your brotherhood in this room. We're all under attack. We're all in a spiritual war. And we all need each other 
in order to fight this. And you need to be encouraged today that you are never expected to battle sin by yourself. God does not expect you to fight temptation alone and isolated. We have one another. And and something that I would absolutely love to see, especially going into the new year, I would love to see every single member at Trace Crossing to be in a discipling relationship. I would love to see every single member to have one or two people that they are actively pouring into and that those people are actively pouring into them. Because unless we're intentional about that, we will continue trying to obey Jesus by ourselves. We will continue trying to resist Satan by ourselves. And that's exactly where Satan wants us. He wants you in a corner in a room by yourself trying to go it alone. And so Peter reminds us, resist him because you're not alone. You have brothers and sisters who are here to help you look to Jesus. Because you are united to Jesus by faith, you actually can resist him. Do you recognize the power of God's grace in you? This moment, because you have the spirit of God dwelling in you, because his grace, the true grace of God is in you right now, you have the power to resist Satan. You actually can do that. And we can do it together, but we do it by looking to Jesus. We look to Jesus' example. Do you guys remember Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, where Jesus is tempted by Satan? And, And we know that that's not the only time Jesus was tempted by Satan, but how did Jesus respond to that temptation? He resisted. Jesus resisted Satan in those moments. And yes, he did it in our place, because if Jesus had succumbed to temptation, we would have no hope. But he also did it as an example because since we are connected to him, the one who resisted Satan, the one who overcame Satan, we can resist him. We can overcome. But then secondly, Jesus didn't just give us an example that we can resist Satan. The only reason we can is because of what he did later. Jesus defeated Satan in his death and resurrection. Hebrews 2.14 Write that passage down. I want you to go to it a little bit later. I'm going to turn to it right now. Hebrews 2.14 says this. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So when you're fighting against Satan, you look to Jesus because he defeated Satan. He conquered Satan. And much like the Nazis in World War II, even though the war was definitely over, as soon as they recognized the war was over, they only fought harder. So Satan's not gonna stop fighting just because he knows that he's defeated. But you need to remember that Satan is a conquered enemy. He is a vanquished foe. And one day, he will be no more. And we will reign forever with Christ. Let's practice that today. huh? Let's practice that victory today. Let's walk in it today and say no to temptation and sin. Because every single time you trample over Satan and sin by resisting them, it's a foretaste of what eternity is going to be like. Victory over evil, over sin, over Satan. Resist Satan because God has conquered him. And then this last point, stand firm because God has called you to glory. Oh, what, what a final word of hope for these suffering Christians. And if you're suffering in this room today, if you're weary this morning, what a word here. Verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. A little phrase at the beginning. After you have suffered a little while, when does suffering ever feel quick? You know, when you're in a season of suffering, a day feels like a month. A little while? That's insulting, right? Well, after you've suffered a little while, how is Peter able to say this? 
He's able to say it because the ultimate hope of the gospel is actually not experienced right now. You see, we can right now resist Satan. We can right now cast our anxieties on God. We can right now humble ourselves. We can do all of those things. Something we can't do is enjoy the ultimate hope of the gospel. It's still a hope right now because the ultimate hope of the gospel is not regeneration. The ultimate hope of the gospel is not justification, as great as that is. The ultimate hope of the gospel is not sanctification. The ultimate hope of the gospel is not that we would put sin to death and obey Jesus more. The ultimate hope of the gospel isn't that we would have great friendships and relationships in the church. The ultimate hope of the gospel isn't even reconciliation. The ultimate hope of the gospel is future eternal glory with God. That's the end. Justification and sanctification lead to glorification. All who are justified, all who are sanctified will one day be glorified. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus stamped an expiration date on sin, suffering, and Satan. His life, his death, his resurrection put an end, an end date to all sin, all suffering, and Satan himself. So, yes, you're suffering now. You can expect it. You can expect to suffer now. But it's only for a little while because you have eternal glory awaiting you. You will suffer now. You will still sin now. And Satan, sometimes he will win battles against you now. But you will outlive all of them. You will outlive your own suffering. Even if suffering kills you now. Even if your pain kills you now. If you are in Christ, your hope is not in overcoming suffering temporarily. Your ultimate hope is that God has overcome. And he has called you to his eternal, permanent, unchanging glory. Where there is fullness of joy and pleasure forevermore. And where there will be no suffering because there will be nothing in your presence to cause suffering. Or that ever could possibly cause suffering. There will be no more temptation because there will be no more sin. And there will be no more enemies. Only friends. That's our hope. We can stand firm in our faith today. We can stand firm in the grace of God today. In the midst of suffering. So when you feel the waves and the wind of suffering and temptation beating against you and you feel like you're going to be knocked down that's where you need to be because that's a position of humility I can't do this and you can stand firm with your feet firmly planted in the love of God that he has for you in Christ we can stand firm in our faith. Not because our faith is strong, right? Not because our stance is strong, like, you know, we've just been on like a constant, like frequent leg day, you know, like we're just gonna stand here and be able to bear the weight of everything that comes against us. No, we can stand firm because our feet are planted in Jesus himself. It's the strength of the object of our faith, not the strength of our faith that assures us we can stand and withstand all the onslaughts of Satan and sin and suffering. So, we hope for healing. If you're in this room and you hope for healing, you need this word. Jesus will restore you. You hope for assurance? Jesus will confirm you. You hope for endurance? To be able to endure to the end? You feel weak right now? 
Jesus will strengthen you. You hope for stability, Jesus will establish you. He will do it. Only he can, but he is willing and he is able to help you stand firm in God's grace in the midst of great suffering and temptation. So I want to encourage you to huddle around one another. May we do that during this season. May we draw near, not just to God, but to one another and continuously help point one another to Jesus, the perfecter of our faith. I would love to see it. I would love to see, what a dream it would be to see every single member in a close discipleship relationship with another member in our faith family where we recognize that we're not alone in this fight and we actually practice that because we're helping one another fight sin, fight temptation. We're helping one another pursue humility and we're helping one another cast burdens. Do you know the way that you bear burdens together? It's not just by saying, well, how's it going? And, oh man, I hate that. Let's, oh, you know, and now you're kind of both bearing it. You can't bear it either, you know? And you can come together and even the both of you, with all the worry that's in the world, you can't bear it either. Bearing burdens together is the practice of coming together and taking your burdens and casting them together on God who is able. And pointing one another to Jesus and saying, remember brother, remember sister, we rest in him. He has accomplished everything. He has borne our griefs on him. We can't stand firm alone. We need each other. I pray that this would be a season in the life of our church where we do just that. We come together to fight and to press on with a hope that's so much greater than what Winston Churchill had, right? Like his hope was, I really hope this happens, right? But I'm kind of worried because, you know, a few attacks from the Nazis and we're in trouble. But I really want this to happen. His was more of a trickery. Like I'm just gonna try to convince them that we're okay and maybe it'll galvanize them. Our hope is way different from that. It's certain. We can count on it. So fight in that freedom today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that you would use it for our good. I pray that you would use it to help convict us where we need to be convicted. I pray that you would use it to comfort us where we need to be comforted. Father, we're all suffering in one way or another. And when we suffer, we're prone to be prideful. When we suffer, we're prone to worry. So we're so thankful for this this great reminder that we're to pursue humility and admit our need for you. And we do that in the confidence that it's under your mighty hand that we're humbling ourselves. And Father, when we worry, I pray that you would remind us that you care. And I pray that you would remind us that you were able to bear all of our burdens. I pray that you would remind us, give them to me. Give them to me. And I pray that we would. Father, thank you for the reminder that that Satan is like a lion who's after our destruction. And he tries to deceive us all the time. Sometimes it's really subtle and we don't even notice. I pray that we would be watchful. I pray that we would be sober-minded, that we would be aware, that we would be alert, and that we would practice what Jesus has accomplished for us, that we would resist Satan because he is a defeated foe because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And Father, help us to stand firm. Help us to stand firm in your grace. Not because we're really strong, because we're actually really weak, but because we know that you will hold us fast. And because we know that one day our suffering will be a distant memory. We know that one day we will exist, but Satan will not. We know one day we will be your glory. We will share your glory. 
But in these moments now, in this little while, help us to endure by the power of your grace. We ask that you would do all of these things in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. Let's stand together and respond through song. Thank you.